Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word that you are a God that is not silent. You did not leave it up to us to try to figure things out. The reality is we are broken cisterns. We leak all over the place. And you are always full. And so God, help us to see who we are, how we are, that we might be people that have hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, for the better part of this summer, we've been considering wisdom from the book of Proverbs. We've defined uh, wisdom as joyfully applying. It's got this lean towards application. Uh, joyfully applying God's truth for life. That's the definition of wisdom. And so wisdom is the application of the clear principles of God's word to the gray areas of God's world. Right, so it's important to think about. Wisdom is the application of the clear principles of God's word to the gray areas of God's world. And so God's people uh, are to be unlike the world. They're to be set apart. They're to be these community, these people that are striving after virtue, after wisdom. And so we've learned from Proverbs that the beginning of being people of wisdom, being people of virtue, the beginning of that is the fear of the Lord. We saw that from Proverbs months ago. In uh, the fear of the Lord, meaning that we rejoice and we tremble before him. We rejoice for all that he is before us, uh, is for us, and we tremble in that we know that he is still the transcendent God of the universe. And so to be wise then is to begin and end with the understanding that we are not God, that we submit our lives to him that is. And that fact alone, guys, that fact alone changes everything, as we'll see this morning. We'll conclude our consideration of wisdom for the summer by moving out of the book of Proverbs and into another book of wisdom, the book of Psalms. You'll see that the message is very similar here in Psalm 14. It, too, will push us to be a people who seek knowledge, that seek wisdom under the fear of the Lord, that we might be a holy people, that we might be a people of wisdom amidst a world of so much pain. Again, we're looking at Psalm 14, and if you're wondering why Psalm 14... Well, it is as long as I am your pastor, it has been my, about a couple years ago, I've endeavored to try to preach the entire 150 Psalms through the ministry of the church, not me next necessarily. So whenever there's a break in the calendar, the, what we're going to do is, is just grab the next Psalm that we haven't preached, and that happens to be Psalm 14. And you need to know from the beginning of this, as we consider it, this sermon, this text is full of a lot of very unpopular ideas. One of the things that we've said from this pulpit many times is that the gospel-believing churches should be the one place that everybody can come to and hear the truth. We don't want to come here and just hear political tribalism. Churches should not be that. Shouldn't have to go to churches and just get a bunch of cultural conditioning, nor should churches be full of teaching that is just full of superficial, superficial niceties. No, this should be the place you get the truth. Get the truth. When you're going, when you're ill, when you see things are bad in you, you go to the doctor, he comes back, he looks at you or she looks at you. They've got concerned faces on their, on their faces concerned. What do you want in that moment? You want the truth, right? You don't want any kind of, kind of uh, stuff that's not real science. You don't want popular logic. You don't want just some nice little stuff just to make you feel good, just to affirm kind of how you are. No, you want the truth in that moment, right? So that's what we're going to give you this morning. Unpopular though it might not be, we're going to give you the truth. It is my conviction that like that doctor's visit, the more that we stare at the truth, 
the more that we can actually make progress in the world. Psalm 14 answers three critical questions about life in this world. Here's the first. Why are things the way they are? Why are things the way they are? I wonder how you'd answer that question, but let's just answer it. Now, to begin with, I am of the opinion that we oftentimes don't ascribe uh, all the many good things in the world that are going on. There's tons of them that we just overlook. That often posed question, which is a good one to Christians, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? One of the responses to that, well, before we answer that one, can we just acknowledge all the good in the world? However, that being said, there is pervasive evil, there is pervasive suffering all around us. In many ways, that is the basic testimony of human of the human experience. Young people, you need to know that. This is the bad news. Right? Here's the grumpy old man. Get off my lawn talking for a second. All right. So when you grow up, guys, when you grow up, life is just getting harder. Right? It's full of a lot of disappointment. It's full of a lot of difficult things. It's interwoven, kids, with good things. But life is not what the movies or what the cultural tropes tell us. It's not this upward climb of positivity and peace. People disappoint us. We don't get that job, that internship. Fires, floods, and hurricanes devastate things. People steal things that are important to us, like our reputations or material things. People lie to us. People touch us in ways we don't want them to. Things almost always don't work out the way that we plan for them to. And sometimes... That's just because we live in a broken world and sometimes because we or others make mistakes that are hard to recover from. The world is a hard place in so many ways. So why are things so hard in the world? Well, there's plenty of people that will give you all kinds of teachings that will attempt to answer that question. Some will say that it's ignorance. That's what's wrong. That's why things are the way they are. It's ignorance. People are just needing to have more education. They just need some more education. They hope in schools, therefore. More knowledge on science and technology will fix the problems of the world. Some say it's economics. There's too many poor people. The more money we have, the less poor people we'll have, the better things will be. They put their hope in the economy. Some say it's authority in general. That's the problem. Wherever we see someone with any kind of power, especially those with institutions, be it the church, be it the government, be it the patriarchy, whatever it is, They've abused it. They've created havoc. The more that we can just get rid of authority, the better the world will be. And then there are some that say that it's religion. People are just not religious enough. That's the problem. People need to go to church so they can get some better morals. And while this one might be closer to what Christians believe, like all of these other theories, they still don't go deep enough. Christians believe in the value of knowledge the value of economics, the value of authority. Uh, And to a degree, depending on what you mean by religion, we think that's important. But in none of these things do you find the deep enough answers to answer the question down deep why things are the way they are. They don't go far enough, as is illustrated by their own communities, continuing to make progress, and yet things remain difficult. They don't go down deep enough. And so here it is. Here's the doctor's visit moment. The unpopular truth. Here is what Christians believe explains why the world is the way that it is. Because mankind, by nature, is not good, but corrupt. By nature, we, when we come into the world, we instinctively are not basically good, but basically bad. 
We instinctively do what we or our group wants. Instead of seeking God by nature and understanding what he wants, we kind of do whatever it is we want to do or whatever our kind of group tells us to do. And so until he, mankind, is remade, reformed, or to use the language of Jesus, born again, unless he or she is born again, the world will go on as it has, full of doubt, disappointment, and death. And friends, this is so clear in those first three verses of Psalm 14. You'll notice the context of Psalm 14 is Psalm 13, wherein the psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord? Everything's terrible. Psalm 14 comes in and explains that. Why is mankind crying out, how long? The fool, we learn in verse 1 there of chapter 14, the fool says, where? In his heart, there is no God. Again, notice that it says, in his heart, not in his mouth. In other words, David, the author here, isn't talking about the avowed atheist alone. He's saying that all of us are fools. All of us act as though there is no God, as evidenced by what he goes on to say. Take a look at it. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Circle the word, none who does good. Now, I get it. Some of you are listening to this and you're going, come on, Nathan, really? None? I'm not a terrible person. I don't lie, cheat, or steal. I haven't killed anybody, right? I'm a pretty good person. I give my money to the poor. I try to be nice. What do you mean, none? Well, look at that next next verse. This is so important, friends. David is giving us not our perspective, not Nathan's perspective, not your perspective, not D.C. 21st century America's perspective. He's giving us God's perspective. It says there, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any, circle that word, any who understand, that is, those who really seek after God. And what's the answer? It says that they, or we, have all, circle that word, turned aside. Together, they, or we, have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Verse 4 says that they have no true knowledge. All the evildoers who eat up his people and don't call upon the Lord. Verse 6 says they shame the plans of the poor. Now, friends, maybe you don't eat up God's people or maybe you don't shame the plans of the poor explicitly. But while we may not think that we are bad people, from God's perspective, we learn that there is none who does good. And we remember he's the standard of good, not us. We look at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. He creates and he's able to say it is good, it is good, it is good. He's the standard, not us. Paul in the New Testament, this is not just some rote kind of strange piece of Scripture. We see this consistent thread throughout all of the Bible in terms of its assessment of humanity. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, I could show you many other places, but Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, he describes what mankind is apart from Christ. And there he says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that we're dead in our sins. That we follow, what is it we do? We follow the course of whatever the world is telling us. We follow the evil one, the prince of the power of the air. We live, he says, in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind and are by nature, Paul says, children not of goodness, not of virtue. We are by nature, he says, children of wrath. Our natural parents are anger 
ease and conformity to whatever patterns we happen to be swimming in. Humanity is broke by nature. This is the uncomfortable truth in the doctor's office after the evaluation. We may not like it, just like we may not like the news from the doctor, but it's still real. We still have to reckon with it. And one way or another, we are by nature fools because our instinct is not to seek to understand God and then live out under His ways, but instead it's to turn aside and become increasingly corrupt by doing what we please. And in this way, we are all functional atheists by nature, which explains why things are the way that they are. We're separated from God. We're sort of like the vacuum that's not plugged into the wall. We have no energy, no power, so we can't suck up the bad. We've got to plug in to God because we're dead apart from Him. Until this is understood, there can be no relief to bring about the good, sustainable good. And I should note that when we read that first verse, we're talking, he's talking about fools here, fools in their heart because they don't believe that there's a God. We're not just talking about intelligence. We're talking about just this nature. There are at least two kinds of fools, two kinds of atheism that result in none doing good. The first one is pretty easy. It's confessional atheism, right? Like Richard Dawkins or many philosophers or ethicists at your local university. Those are easy to spot. They'll tell you that there is no God. They say it with their mouths and they make up whatever they think goodness is or isn't. But then there's the harder ones, the functional atheists. These are harder to spot, the rest of us. They won't tell you with their mouths that they are atheists. In fact, they might even tell you they believe in God. They might even call themselves Christians. They might even be pastors or priests. Or they may reject institutional religion altogether and claim to practice a faith on their own, individually. But either way, you can see their hearts by the way their lives function. As Jesus would say it, you will know them by their fruits. By what comes out of them. How they live. How they love. What are they tapped into and what is it resulting? You can tell the uh, functional atheist by really just asking one question. Where do they submit to the God that they claim to believe? You can really flesh this out to see if someone is a functional atheist by asking where do they submit to the God that they claim to believe? If God is God, then he has to have some standard that presumably we need to align into. And presumably that person, not being perfect, doesn't align to that. So what's the standard that they are or are not aligning to? And if you don't find a person in some ways repenting of the many places they fail that standard and are endeavoring to bring themselves into obedience, well, then they are exposed. Their hearts are exposed. Another way of saying that is if the God that you believe in happens to agree with you on most everything or it happens to agree with all the culture around you, it's not God of whom you believe in. It's you or your tribe that you believe in as God. And in this way, you are a fool according to Scripture because down in your heart, maybe not with your head or your mouth, you believe that there is no God because you don't submit to any God. Really, You submit to self or group as God. And so again, humanity is by nature foolish. Now, some might say, well, someone might be a confessional or functional atheist, Nathan, and still do some good. Well, friends, David would beg to differ. 
here's a man that is anointed, the anointed king of Israel, that is guided along by the Holy Spirit, given insight into the perspective of God, and he is given a true knowledge, and he tells us that cancer is inside of all of us. No one does good. And if you want some more insight on that, you say, well, well, how could God think that of all of us? Well, if you want some more insight, turn to a passage like Romans 14, 23 that says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, you might objectively do a good thing. Like you might actually go feed the poor or educate the poor. And in and of itself, that is objectively a good thing. But in God's evaluation, insofar as it is not done in or through the trust of the one true God, that then means that that otherwise good act actually lies about reality. If you're not doing that good act in faith of the one true God that is good, and instead you're doing it apart from him, therefore you're communicating something that's simply not true. Namely, that you can do good apart from the God that is good. That's simply not possible. Again, that's like the vacuum trying to suck up things without being plugged into the wall. Therefore, God can say, as he does here, that by nature there is none who does good. All of mankind is by nature dead in sin. Which, of course, by the way, that's going to help us understand as an aside real quick that you can't earn your salvation. You can't do stuff. You can't take the Lord's Supper enough. You can't do enough good deeds because you're broke. Friends, this unique explanation by Christians from the word of Christ reveals down deep why things are the way that they are. No, the world is not as bad as it could be. That's true. But that's only because of the Lord's common grace wherein he allows the uh, rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But we will not make sustainable progress towards the good unless we reckon with this reality. And obviously you are free to disagree with this claim. But friends, your disagreement is not with me, not even with my, disagree- my sort of interpretation. Your disagreement is with the straightforward teaching of God's word. That's what you have to reckon with. It's not like that Nathan guy's an idiot. I, I probably am an idiot. Right, But the reality is, is this is just a straightforward, your disagreement is with God and the straightforward teaching of his word. The testimony of scripture from beginning to end. You read the book of Judges and it's a mess. And the basic point of Judges is, is mankind can't do it on his own. But also I would say, friend, the other thing is our experience testifies to the truthfulness of this teaching in scripture. Our experience testifies to the truth of it. And this is the one of the Simplest things to note. We have a lot of kids in this church. We have a bazillion kids in this church, and they're learning this, right? You never had to be taught how to lie, cheat, or steal. Never. But your kids, right? Can I get an amen from the parents? Your kids do have to be taught to be good. And maybe they can be good once or twice, but they can't be good sustainably. They've got to be taught that. They don't have to be taught how to be selfish. That experience testifies to the truth of what we learn here. We're going to have to be born again. And so, friends, this is the unvarnished, unpopular, and uncomfortable truth about the children of man, including myself. God looks down and sees that we are all in varying ways foolish in our hearts, consciously or subconsciously. We are all like those viral videos of the kids that walk into retail stores with big bags in the broad daylight and just start taking stuff and stealing it, putting in the bags and walking out the front door because they don't think there's any real authority, any penalty over them. We're all like that. 
we have no fear of the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul will go on to say. So in Romans chapter 3, if you want some more time, Romans chapter 3, Paul takes this psalm, Psalm 14, and he just sort of meditates on it to make his point. Romans 3.18, he kind of concludes. He lists out Psalm 14, those first few verses, and at the, he mentions some other verses. And at the end of his argument, he says, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why he understands things are the way they are. Mankind's broke, as is illustrated by the fact that there's no fear of God, no willingness to submit to him, but we only fear ourselves or our neighbor. We don't seek to understand the Lord. We don't call upon Him. We don't seek to bring our lives underneath Him because we don't fear Him as God. And instead, we then do no good, and instead we think that we will not be accountable, and we just ravage retail stores in plain sight. We do as our basic nature tells us to do, not as what God designed us to do. This is the world as we know it. And there's still something within us that kind of says, you know, that sounds right, even though I don't like it. It explains everything from corrupt governments and wars down to family abuse and the disenchantment with the world. And so, if this is why things are the way they are, if this is God's perspective, second question then, what should we expect from God? And by we, I mean humanity. What should we expect from Him if this is how God sees the world? We'll look at verse 5. Great terror. They are in great terror for God is with the generation of the righteous. Okay, more on that in just a second. But nevertheless, what we see there is God is with the generation of the righteous. More on that in a second. But those that are not in that generation should expect great terror. Because as we read in verse 2, this is important, God sees all. And since God is holy and he sees all, he must then Judge all, and there's the terror. But he will judge it. Otherwise, he would not be holy. If God doesn't judge it, he's not holy. If God did not judge, does not judge all unrighteousness. If God uh, actually in some ways right, does not judge all the good that we don't do from faith, if God does not judge all of our evil deeds, our disinterest in seeking to know him, to understand the Lord of glory, if he doesn't judge then therefore he isn't holy and therefore he's not worth following. Or to use the language of Psalm 14, he would be among those that does no good. Think about that judge, for instance, that sits in front of the man that burns your house down, that beats your spouse and terrorizes your kids. Think about a judge that looks at that man and says, you know, listen, don't worry about it. Try to do better. Go ahead. We would all say that is unjust, right? He needs to get judgment, right, in some way. That's not good. We understand that the criminal needs to get the punishment that meets the crime. Now, you might respond to that and say, well, Nathan, what if it's not clear as you're making it? What if I'm an otherwise, what if I really am an otherwise good preacher? I just don't believe and live as the whole Bible says. God is going to judge me in great terror? Again, friend, I am not the standard. 21st century D.C. is not the standard of good. You have to let the source of good be the standard. And God is the source and embodiment of goodness. He sees all we learn. Therefore, he judges all in all of the ways that you and I fall short of not your standards, not our city's standards, his standards. And before you reject this entire doctrine, friend, 
can you just take just a few minutes this afternoon to check your basic assumptions? Take just a few minutes to think, all right, what if David is actually right? What if Paul is right? Just take, just take a few minutes to think about that. Let yourself go there just for a few minutes and consider the reality. Jesus himself said that there is none who are good except God alone. That's Jesus' words. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 11, he even calls us evil by nature. Therefore, would it not be just of God to do something about how you and I have shown little or no interest in his life-giving commands? Try and imagine, for instance, there's another illustration of this. Try and imagine being married to a spouse that did nothing but good to you. They were so good to you who loved you, who pursued you, that showed you the ways of goodness. And try and imagine for 40 years, let's say, of that marriage, you showed no interest in them loving you. How, how would you feel if not only they're pursuing you, loving you, showing you the way, and you don't show, not only do you not show interest, you also pursue other lovers. If you were that spouse loving, wouldn't you want justice? Wouldn't you get angry? How much more would God, who sees all, knows all, and has so loved the world that he gave his only son, that you would believe him, follow him? How much more if he loved us like that and we respond by giving him the equivalent of a child that's placed around a hundred bars of gold? He has no interest. The child has no interest in the gold. How would you respond if God would give us so much wealth in Christ and we just didn't really even care about it? Worse, we even went on to pursue other gods of our own making, maybe even in his name. Well, friend, I think when we actually slow down and consider it, great terror sounds about right. The reason why things are the way they are is because man is as he is. By nature, we aren't concerned with God as judge. Uh, We do as we please. We don't fear God. Therefore, we don't try to understand him or seek after him. Instead, he seeks the after we seek after the God of our own making. Even our good deeds, as God says, are dirty rags. They're done in some ways to kind of be disconnected from the God of the universe. This causes all kinds of corruption. Therefore, God must punish the injustices with his justice, which is great terror to us. Guys, we all want the world to be made right, right? We all do. We all want justice. That's what God promises to do. He promises to be just. The question is, have we ourselves taken the time to consider that God deserves to give us justice? We think a lot about the justice out there. Have we thought about what justice we might deserve? That leads to the third and final question that Psalm 14 seeks to answer. Is there any hope for humanity? At this point, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning and you're going like, all right, I thought you guys were all about the good news, man. Can you give me a little bit of that? Right? Where's that at? The clear and unequivocal answer is that there is hope for humanity. In this passage, we have seen that there is none who seeks after God, none who does good. That's God's perspective. God is all-seeing, all-good, and all-judge of all. Therefore, those that are not in him are then in great terror. But we also find in this passage that God is gracious and merciful. 
He had to be if there was going to be any hope, right? If we are by nature dead, we must not look within ourselves for life and peace or hope. We're going to have to look without, right? We're going to have to look out, not in. And herein, we have the other Christian message that is so unique to the world. No religion. I understand that everybody says Christianity is just like all the other religions. That is simply not true by two points that we've considered. One, that Christianity says mankind doesn't have enough goodness in him to do some religious stuff and be made right with God. Christianity didn't say that. But the second thing is, is therefore, since that's true, the other unique message of the Christian is this, that we can look to the very same God of whom will judge us to give us mercy. Therefore, we can remain hopeful. Not because we trust in our ability to rise up out of the situation and find it ourselves, like other religion or worldviews that kind of tell you that. Go do some commandments, and then if you do them good enough, maybe God will be merciful. No, no, no. That's the world's religion. That is not Christianity. We have hope because we trust that the God of whom we offended, the God of whom we uh, should be in great terror to, our disregard for him, that same God is also merciful and gracious. We deserve great terror, and yet in Christ, the Lord offers us great mercy. Take a look. Look at verse 5. We read that God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, we tend to use that word generation as a group of people born and living at the same span of time, right? I am Gen X. Think of me what you will. Like, oh, now that explains everything, right? Uh, generation X or the millennial generation. That's the way we tend to think of generation. But that's not the way that David is using the word generation. It's not what he means. He's using the word generation like we would use a word to describe a kind of thing or a group of things. Like the, quote, generation of jet fighter planes to be, extinct, to, to be distinguished from the generation of the propeller fighter planes. Or the generation of the smartphone to be ex- distinguished from the generation of landline phones. Yes, young people, we used to have phones that plugged into the wall. It's amazing, right? That's how David's talking about it. David isn't talking about a group of righteous people born and living at the same time as himself. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a kind or a group of righteous people. The collective group of God's righteous people across space and time. The generation of the righteous. The collective group of God's redeemed people. The ones who God has regenerated by the life and blood of Christ the Son. We were out helping Mercy of Christ yesterday at at their festival, and they had these big blow-up things, right? And I was thinking about this passage, and there was a generator, and it was blowing air into these inflatables. That's what God's doing. There's this generation of people across all space and time, and like that generator, it's blowing righteousness into a group of people. We know that that's who David is talking about because he's not just making a statement about his own day and time. Right? He's, he's already said he's been making a statement about all of humanity for all of time. Therefore, that includes the generation of the righteous in all time. God was the righteous. God was with the righteous of David's day. He continues to be with the righteous in our day. Because he has had a righteous people that he foreknew before, 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 before the foundation of the world. They... That group of people, they are the generation of the righteous. He was with us before today. He was with us today. As you heard Travis say, he'll be with his people tomorrow. 
And no matter what an evil and unjust world might do to the righteous, whether they eat their people up, whether they shame their plans, he will not cease being with them. And the generation of the righteous know that because, unlike the children of man who by their nature do not call upon the Lord, the generation of the righteous, look at verse 6, they take refuge in the Lord. Children of man don't take refuge in him. Children of God do. And that is the good news. And notice, by the way, right, they have to take refuge not in themselves. They're taking refuge in something outside of themselves, in God. There is hope for a world saturated in doubt, disappointment, disillusionment, and death. While we are still riddled with sin and death, God is not. That's what that word holy means. It means set apart. And he has made a way for sinners to be among the generation of the righteous by doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. This passage, guys, forces us to answer this question. Maybe you've already been asking. How can mankind by nature be foolish and they're not seeking after God and become corrupt, no good, deserving terror, yet at the same time be part of the generation of the righteous? How's that possible? Clearly the righteousness had to come from external, right? Come from outside. It had to come from outside of ourselves, not from within. The hope of the world, guys, is not Disney's gospel. That's foolishness. Look within. No, it's look without. The true God and his gospel tells us to look up and out to the God God of righteousness, who by his love and mercy gave his only son to save us from the great terror of judgment that we all deserve. Look at the passage. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, everything's terrible. Psalm 14. This is why, because mankind is terrible. Look at Psalm 15. The very next psalm after this one. Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Not you, not me. Him. Christ. The psalmist is pointing us to a righteousness outside of ourselves that comes together in the one that does ascend the holy hill of God. The one Jesus Christ. The only one that did. Look at Psalm 14. And just think about this as I walk it through. Jesus the Christ was no fool. In his heart, he always loved God. He was never corrupt. He didn't do a single abominable deed. Unlike us who aren't good, he always did good. The Lord looked down on the children of man and saw no one good, but he looked at his eternally begotten son, the child of God, and he only did good. He never turned aside. He always called upon his God. His father was his refuge. He never shamed the plans of the poor. And not only is he among the generation of the righteous, he is the righteousness of the generation of the righteous. Because Jesus was both God and man, he could then reconcile men to his God by, not ours, but his righteousness. Therefore, on the cross, Christ bore our punishment. He took the great tear that is due to fall upon us. He satisfied our debt. He paid it all by his righteous body and blood. Something that none of us can do because we are not good. He defeated it. That's how we know that he was righteous. That's how we know that he was uniquely doing good and able to pay the atoning blood to bring about righteousness to sinners. We know that that's true because three days later, just as he said, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. The check cleared, as it were. 
And after 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where right now, what does he do? But intercede his righteousness. Here's the generating, blowing the air into the inflatables. He's interceding his righteousness into his beloved, into his people, into the true Israel. He, on the cross, purchased all of that. He didn't make it possible. He did it. He purchased it. Therefore, whoever agrees with God's assessment of our sin and rebellion against him and trusts not in any works of our own, but only in the sufficient work of Christ in his righteous life, death, and resurrection and ascension, that person becomes part of the generation of the righteous. All by grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. All by grace, all by the mercy of God, not by tradition, my parents or Christians. No, not by intelligence because I sat down and figured it all out. No, not by my works. I tried to go to church enough and give enough money. No, none of that. Only by the grace of God alone in Christ alone. My faith is in him. In the same way, when I get on an airplane, my faith is not in me. It's in the pilot to get me where I need to go. So my faith is in Christ. We can be redeemed from not only the evil in our own hearts. Listen to this, guys. The news gets even better. We can also be saved from the evil in the world. The doctrine of justification teaches us the generation of righteousness. That's what the Reformation was all about. Doctrine of justification is being declared righteous. And then there's something called the doctrine of glorification that verse 7 speaks straight into. Look again at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. We might say that happened. I think, matter of fact, we could. Zion was the dwelling place of God. That's, what, that's, that's a word that would be descri- used to describe that, the dwelling place of God. Zion, the, the psalmist, David is asking that salvation would come out of Zion. The Lord comes out for Zion. When the Lord, notice it's not us, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Righteousness or justification comes by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, and also glorification when Christ returns. That's why we are singing on Jordan Stormy Banks. When Christ returns, when he comes out of Zion, when he comes out of heaven, all that has been taken from us in this life, this also comes to us by grace through faith in Christ. For it is in this doctrine of glorification that we as Christians believe is the true and final salvation that will come. The New Testament talks about this all the time. As we think about, uh, you'll see this a number of times in 1 Thessalonians. There you go. That's what we're doing in two weeks, 1 Thessalonians. All right. So you're going to see this, right? There's this sense in which they're still waiting for salvation. And that might confuse you. The reason why they're they're saying that is because they understand full salvation is still to come when Jesus comes out of Zion and makes this whole world right. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, our lack of knowledge, our bodies that are breaking down, our Christian family and friends that have been taken from us, our lack of goodness, anything else, it's all going to be restored to us. Most especially the fortune of Christ himself. We will see. We Christians call this heaven. Therefore, the Christian can uniquely say in a world full of darkness, look at verse 7, the Christian can say something the world can't. Rejoice and be glad. And I love that word let. I can let. I can do it in the worst day. Rejoice and be glad. For true Israel, the one that is in Christ, true Jacob, that's the one that are God's people by the righteousness, their faith in God's son, the true son of David, 
We will escape the terror and arrive in a world of fortune where we will see our refuge and our salvation. So that on the brightest day or the darkest night, we will always have reason to rejoice and be glad. Because as our Savior promised, nobody can take your joy from you. This is the story of the gospel. This is our story, church. And so I leave us with two very brief points of application to the two generations that are seated right in front of me. First, briefly to the generation of the as yet unrighteous, to you that are still a child of man, to those of you who remain in the state of great terror, that think you can be your own authority. You're not a child of God as such by grace through faith in Christ. To those who in your heart, maybe not your mouths, say that there is no God as evidenced by your believing that there is no judgment, by your believing that, there is, that you are an authority unto yourself, not taking refuge in the Lord, not calling upon the Lord, and remaining in your corruption, I give you the words of Jesus, not even my own words, I give you the words of Jesus in John three thirty six when he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but will have great terror. But the wrath of God remains on him. So confessional or functional atheist, you are left to pay for your own disregard of God. God will be seen as just and righteous. Yes, God will even be seen as loving by his giving you over to your desires, wherein you will eventually pay for your rebellion by being apart from him forever. You will be of the generation of the unrighteous. And as David says, great terror is upon you. And so, friend, there's the call. Come to Jesus. There's a way out. See your sin. Repent. Believe. And come up under the mercies of Christ. Believe today. Tell somebody about it. Be relieved from that terror by trusting in Christ to have absorbed that terror on your behalf. Look to Christ. If you want to know more about that gospel, come talk to me. Come talk to your friend, your neighbor. Come talk to us. Let us work you around that gospel. I am the doctor. I've read the report. It may not be welcome news, but it's true news. But I also know the cure. Secondly and finally, for the rest of us, for we generation of the righteous, for those of us who, like David, are no longer submitting to sin but to the Savior, I call you to two things. Verse 6 is the first one. May the Lord be your refuge, not your better circumstances. I'm going to say it again, said it a thousand times, as your pastor, I am burdened. When I come around you and you're going through some strife, some struggle, something you want better, could be you want your family to be better, you want your marriage to be better, want your relationships to be better, want your jobs to be better, want your living situation to be better. I talk to you about these things and you're struggling, and as well you should be struggling. That makes sense. But then I ask you just the basic question. Are you going to Christ? Are you praying? Are you meditating on some promise to answer into that? And guys, too often the answer from you guys is not much. And that leads me to be concerned for you because it seems as though you're not, verse 6, you're not taking refuge in the Lord, you're taking refuge in better circumstances that won't serve you well because life's hard and it always will be till Jesus comes back. I'm pleading with you, church. Take refuge in the Lord. 
not better circumstances. I understand those two things don't have to be separated. I'm just calling you to do, as David says here, in a world full of so much badness. Take refuge in the Lord. Don't take refuge. Don't put all of your hopes, all of your eggs into the basket of, well, if this changes, everything's going to be great. It won't because something else will come. God, Christ, he's your refuge. He's the only one that won't fail you. He's the only one that's done it all. And so, guys, you've got to be more at prayer. You've got to be more at meditation. You've got to be more thinking about the gospel and the way it speaks into that. You've got to be helping each other on towards that end so that I don't come up to you and say, once again, what do you think I'm going to do to help you if you're not going to the Lord? Take refuge in the Lord. He'll never fail you. Your circumstances are always going to change. He never changes. Take refuge in the Lord. And secondly, finally, rejoice and be glad because a day is going to come when your fortunes are going to be restored. That's why you can take refuge in him. In other words, set your heart and mind on the reward that is to come out of Zion. Don't kill yourself now to get a reward that is here today and gone tomorrow. Rejoice and be glad that Christ, who is your life, he's coming. He will restore everything that is lost to you. Take refuge in the Lord who saved you and will save you upon his return. Hope in heaven, not the things of the earth. For we are not of the children of man any longer. We are children of God. Therefore, let us hope in the place that will never fail. And we hope in heaven where we will see our fortunes restored. Look to see, hope to see Christ, your refuge, your redeemer, your restorer and friend. And soon enough, beloved, he's going to come out of Zion. I know it's been 2,000 years, but he's coming out. So hope in that day. Seek the Lord as your refuge and seek the hope of heaven to come out of Zion to see all of our fortunes restored so that we will then see and savor him forever and ever. And we will finally have all of our tears wiped away. Hope in heaven. Hope in Christ.